when he interviewed me, he, he said, you're a killer. And that was the ultimate compliment to him. The interviewer was Donald Trump. The engineer was Barbara Rez. And the job? Head of construction for New York's Trump Tower. I had to make sure that everything got built. Not just the core and shells, but all these interior spaces, all these big deal tenants and all these very, very rich apartment buyers. So I dealt with hundreds of architects and contractors and engineers. I was in charge of everything. At just 31, Barbara was in charge of one of the world's most complicated construction projects. A fast-track, 68-storey, mixed-use concrete tower block that would house some of the biggest retail names in the world. But to deliver this, and other construction projects before it, Barbara had to cope with harassment and discrimination born of the deep sexism that was ever-present on construction sites in the 1970s and 1980s, making it a hostile environment for women. I used to be a Catholic school girl. I never said bad words or anything like that. And I, I had to turn into this foul-mouthed person in order to survive in the, in the construction world. And they called me names and they did things to me. And even the people that liked and respected me abused me. And in 1991, after two decades in the field, she had an epiphany that would change her life. Welcome to Engineering Matters, where this week we're talking to a truly pioneering engineer, Barbara Rez. At 31, Barbara was made head of construction for what was undoubtedly New York's most challenging building, a 200-metre tall tower that its owner, now President of the United States, Donald Trump, modestly called the most important project in the world. That the project opened on time confounded the cynics, but Barbara's the sort of person who delivers on her commitments. And for Barbara, who'd been working for contractors on projects all over New York, her project always came first, whatever that took. And working in construction in the 1970s and 80s took everything Barbara had. Her natural resilience and determination were pushed to the limit by exclusion, sexual harassment and discrimination. Despite being a brilliant young engineer, Barbara had to fight for her position every day simply because she was a woman. Sites banned her, projects rejected her, bidding opportunities were closed to her. And most disturbingly, she was sexually harassed by men on site. In her book, All Alone on the 68th Floor, Barbara describes the impact that this had on her as a person. It made me tough, it made me crass, it almost stopped me from being a mother, she said. It convinced me I had to make choices when I didn't have to make them. But she only came to this realisation after more than two decades on site, And since then, she's been working to champion women in engineering and shine a light on the issues that are still, even today, preventing women from working in trades on construction sites and rising up the career ladder to become leaders of the industry. To start with, I asked Barbara why she became an engineer when it was such an unusual career choice for women in the 1970s. 
At school in Brooklyn, New York, in the 1960s, it was suggested that this gifted mathematician should perhaps become a teacher. Let me go back to high school. I was very, very good in math. I, I was the best math student in my graduating class of about 800 kids. Very good school. We had a guidance counselor who, you know, met with the children, suggested to them what they do for careers. And, uh, of course, I was going to go to college, but what she said was, um, you should be a math teacher. And it's kind of ironic because I was so good in math. Why not study math itself or engineering even, even better? Um, but it was never even suggested to me because I was a girl. So I went to a school, uh, again, I could have gone to a very um, competitive technical school. I went to a competitive school, but it was um, it was a free school in, in the city of New York. And it just so happened that they had engineering. At the time, Barbara also considered studying law, but it was simply too expensive for her working class family. So she began on the computer sciences course. But after making friends in the engineering department, she switched to electrical engineering, where her math skills were invaluable, and she took an interest in engineering for building projects. I took a couple of courses that directly applied to engineering in buildings. And then I uh, learned a little bit more about that when I was in the field um, working for the electrician. The electrician was Zwicker Electric Company, where Barbara had a summer job drafting slab drawings for the concrete floors of the Mount Sinai Medical Hospital project in New York. As a reward for my good work, they took me to the project to actually see what my work was installed in the field. And to do that, you had to go up there on the floor and walk around on the um, on the steel reinforcing rod and the wood framing, which was no problem at all for me. When I got back to the office, Uh, The next day, a memo went out to everybody on the contracting team uh, saying that women were were not allowed on job site, period. And the excuse was that the uh, shoes um, or clothing were not conducive uh, to um, being on a job site, but specifically the hair (laughs) was uh, not conducive to wearing a hard hat. Pretty funny. Funny in the ironic sense because Barbara's hard hat fitted perfectly. Her hair was long and straight, and her shoes were a cross between work boots and trainers, so were entirely appropriate for being on site. The memo was pure sexism. Despite this, Barbara loved the job, and when she graduated, and by this point, she'd got married to a man she'd met at Zwicker, she'd joined the company full-time. This time she was in the estimating office, learning how to cost the various elements of the project, which she did not enjoy to say the least. I hated it. And they gave me a bit of a hard time. Um, I wanted to keep my maiden name, they call it, you know, the name I was born with. And I got such a hard time about that at the company that they insisted on making out the checks to me in my married name because they knew that I had married somebody that worked at the company. So it was not, um, it wasn't a pleasant place to work after I got married and I left there after about a year. It was 1973 and moving to a new company meant that Barbara was no longer treated simply as the wife of an engineer, but as one in her own right. It was a new start and she became an estimator at contractor Fishback and Moore, where she was one of only three engineers in the whole company and worked in project management as well as estimating. But unfortunately, it didn't last. 
Then I got an opportunity to work on a big project in the field, um, which is a pretty iconic building in New York City. It's called the City Course Center Building. And I was all set to go. I was going to work in the field, in the field office, as an assistant project manager, which would have been great for me, a big promotion. And um, the VP was online. The president was online. Everybody was A-OK with this until the person who was in charge of labor, he's called the superintendent, who was in charge of all the foremen on all the jobs, said no, period. I couldn't go, and I quit. Barbara's reputation as a hard worker meant she was quickly offered a job by the City Corps project manager who worked for Main Contractor, a company called HRH Construction. The contractor needed someone to check and process change orders on the 279-metre tall tower project. And ironically, Barbara found herself working on the same site that had forbidden it. This time, no one complained. And when the project ended, Barbara stayed with the company as it moved on, becoming an assistant project manager on its next project, a major renovation of the Commodore Hotel, a joint venture between Hyatt Hotels and Donald Trump, which was to become the Grand Hyatt. Here she thrived, assessing requisitions, checking estimates, reviewing change orders, evaluating plans, dealing with project coordination. But she also struggled against daily torments, from sexually explicit images of women pinned all over the site to men urinating in front of her and making comments about her body. The sexual harassment was so bad that she reported it to her boss. And although he acted, there were no consequences for the perpetrator. But the guy was too important to take off the job. He was a plumber. The world is full of plumbers. Nevertheless, Barbara put the project ahead of herself and she fought on, working longer and harder than other people. It was on this project that her work ethic and bravery caught the attention of project owner Donald Trump. I worked so hard and um, I was there in the morning at 6 o'clock and the bosses, the big bosses would come through and they would take a walk through with the uh, with the project manager and the superintendent on my job, you know, the head project manager and the head superintendent. And I would be there in the office and the big bosses would say, come along. And I learned a lot by walking through and, you know, hearing what the people that, you know, were really, really the top experienced people in the, in the, in the company. This led to Barbara being asked to attend the owner's weekly project meetings for the senior team. You know, things would come up, and I, I remember in particular the architect saying, well, this is a trade's fault, or this is HRH's fault. And, you know, I came out with an um, uh, expletive. <laughs> That's a lot of BS, but I said the word. And, um, you know, it was that kind of thing that Trump remembered, the fact that I wouldn't take any crap, as we say, from anybody, that I stood up, I was fearless. And I was truly fearless that I... I look back and I say, who the hell is that person? Barbara says this was one of the reasons that Donald Trump decided to offer her a very senior job. When he interviewed me, he, he said, you're a killer. And that was the ultimate compliment to him. And I later learned, much later, that that was his father's thing, that he needed to be a killer. He loved to think that he had these tough, mean women working for him. And he liked having women, very, very Strong, strong women. And the reason for that was twofold. And the first thing was, and he practically admitted this to me, he said, men are better than women, but a good woman is better than 10 good men. 
That was when he interviewed me. And he believed that. And he also thought it was a tremendous compliment, which is, <laughs> I knew that it wasn't, but it really took my, my daughter that um, I, I uh, raised to point out that um, he was being exploitative. And of course, even today it is true, but definitely back then, women had to work harder than men to do the same job. They had to be smarter than men to be to do the same job. And they always worked cheaper. So, of course, he, he liked having women around him. But the main thing, that's reason number one, but the big reason, in my estimation, was he did not feel he had to compete with women. He just knew he was better than a woman. Because he thought he was so smart. Well, there was no woman that was smart like him. There was no woman that was tough like him. No, no woman could ever compete with him. And he liked to have strong women. And strangely enough, he didn't have particularly strong men. <laughs> Chump Tower was unique in lots of ways. At 200 metres, it was tall for a concrete structure. And under the fast track programme, construction had begun before detailed design was complete, making this incredibly challenging. As a mixed use building, it would require a huge number of complicated fit outs for some of the biggest retailers in the world, who had quite specific requirements. At the same time, the unique atrium was to become famous for its salmon pink marble flown in from Carrera in Italy. I had to make sure that everything got built, not just the core and shell, as they say, which is, you know, the concrete and the walls, but all these interior spaces for all these big deal tenants and all these very, very rich uh, apartment buyers. So I dealt with hundreds of architects. Um, and contractors and engineers. And um, I was in charge of everything. I had to be the liaison between any tenants that came in and any apartment building person that came in. You know, lots of times they wanted to make changes. And of course, it would have been so much easier to just build it the way it was on the plans and then let them come in and make changes. But we changed many, many apartments. And, um, and um, I had to oversee that Changes were implemented properly and put on the drawings properly. It was extremely complicated. This was a, a fast-track project done on a cost-plus basis, which meant that you were still designing as construction was going on. So it must I can only imagine how complicated that was to manage. Well, there were new drawings coming out every day, and that was for the basic building. <laughs> Case in point, Trump's apartment, that changed a hundred times. And there's some incredible uh, stories about this in, in the book. One that stayed with me was the atrium and the trees that were bought in. Perhaps you can share that with us. <laughs> yes. Um, we had um, designed the atrium. We had a landscape architect and the architect together designed the atrium, which was all this beautiful pink marble that I said with the wall of water. So it was I don't know, maybe a hundred, maybe maybe not quite a hundred feet tall. Water cascading down this marble that went in and out, you know, like a, a patchwork kind of a pattern. And then there was a big open space at the base of the waterfall where we had tables where people could eat and all sit and read and enjoy, have coffee. Um, each floor had a balcony that overlooked the atrium so that you would. Um, you know, you walk through the floor and um, and look down on this beautiful, beautiful site and the waterfall. 
And um, we even had a bridge at one point on the fourth floor, I believe, which connected two sides of the building. So you walked across where the um, where the atrium was and looked down on it. Anyway, in the atrium were five ficus trees. And ficus trees are um, they're slim box with, with very big canopies of beautiful leaves. Um, we bought them in Florida the year that we started building. And then every six months or so, uh, my assistant and the landscape architect would go down and look at them and make sure that they were being handled properly and growing properly and everything. The operation of moving these trees, they became very, very big, um, was incredibly complex. We had to, we did it in the winter because we were opening on, uh, on, um, February 14th, 1983. And, um, we had to build tunnels of, um, heated space so that the trees could be moved inside the building and placed, put in place. Very, very complicated. It was done over a weekend. It cost a fortune. The trees themselves were a fortune. Doing the work uh, to install them was very expensive. And they got done on a Sunday, and Monday morning, Trump came in to look at them. And he was horrified. Because you looked at the atrium, and all you could see was trees. Especially if you went up to like the second, third, fourth, and fifth floors, you looked down and it was green. It was all the the, um, the canopy of trees with with um, nothing. You couldn't see through them to see the marble. You could hardly see the water wall. So he he had a fit, but he didn't blame anyone, which is very very unusual for him. When something goes wrong, he blames and persecutes somebody. This time, he just blamed the trees, and he said he wanted them down. So I got the architect over there immediately, and he got the landscape guy, and we were all there, gathered around Trump, and Trump said, take them down. The architect begged, and the landscape architect begged, and one by one, we had a a guy with a chainsaw cutting down the trees, and every time he cut down the tree, the architect and the um, landscape engineer, uh, um, architect would beg let us leave the ones that are remaining now. And we went from four to three to two, and I remember the very last one. And everybody, me, the project manager, the assistant uh, architect, everyone was saying, Donald, leave one tree. And he wouldn't. I remember the guy was there with the chainsaw waiting for the word to go. And he just cut down that last tree, and then we pulled out all the balls and, you know, reconfigured the planters so that they had bushes and, and flowers, which were lovely. Um, but Trump was right. They destroyed the atrium. I think what a lot of people in engineering will recognise is the pressure that was on you to complete the building for the 14th of February, 1983. We had a snowstorm on February 12th, which was a Friday, and we were opening... It was on February 11th on a Friday, and we were opening on the 14th, which was a Monday. And it was the worst snowstorm we had had in many, many years. And we had film crews there looking at what we were doing and making, you know, a joke out of the fact that we said we were going to be open. And, of course, they had no idea what they were looking at. (laughs) And they had no idea of how hard it would be to get. They thought it was going to be hard to get it open. They had no idea what they were looking at. But I said, we're going to be open. And, you know, that was shown on several local channels of news. You know, here's here's the workers in Trump Tower. 
And what we did was we stayed over the weekend. We had um, the essential workers that we knew we couldn't live without, particular men, and they were all men, that had to be there. And we put them up in a hotel. And they stayed and worked the weekend. The others uh, traveled in and out, depending on how um, how easy it was to get into the city for them, depending on where they came from. Now, we had retailers that were going to open, and their materials weren't in. And that was a tremendous problem. Um, so one of the things um, I did was I found um, someone with a pickup truck that was on the staff of the uh, contractor. And I sent him out to um, a neighborhood called Paramus, New Jersey, which is a, it's a shopping mecca outside of the uh, suburbs of New York. And I said, just buy all the carpet you can find. And I wanted certain kind, either plush or berber, uh, off-white color carpet. And I sent them to a place called Carpet World, where they have the carpets on these enormous rolls, and they cut them to suit. And he came back with hundreds of yards of carpet. And we carpeted all these places that didn't get their their finishes delivered. They were supposed to floors or whatever. And um, there was a, a men's store, I remember in particular, that had very, very, very expensive men's clothing. And they were located on 3rd Avenue, and they were moving over to uh, Trump Tower, so it was maybe a, uh, a half a mile away. And they moved stock in the snow on um, racks from one store into Trump Tower to get it open. There were lots of stores like that. And we made it. We were done. I mean, it was spit and glue. <laughs> if you read the book, there's so much more about details, the things that weren't finished, and we just hung them. You know, you couldn't lean against them. They would fall apart. But we just made them look like they were done so that we could get the opening. There's an incredible anecdote about the um, water feature and that you you credited the genius of some of your colleagues who managed to get it to, to work just for long enough for Donald Trump to give his speech. Yeah, it was funny. We had one guy at the, um, at the controls, one guy at the base of the water wall, and um, Trump was standing on some kind of a podium that they made for him. And the idea was as soon as he stopped, the guy that was standing near there would uh, walkie-talkie to the water wall guy and then shut it off. And the water wall guy kept telling them, the guy with the walkie-talkie, you got to stop, you got to stop. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to fall apart. And um, he kept making the cut sign, you know, where you take your hand and you draw it across your neck to Donald telling him, stop, shut up, end your speech. <laughs> we just barely made it. It leaked like crazy. It leaked all over the basement. It was like a flood down there, but it held together, which is what the point of it was. And it was still beautiful when it was shut down. And how did because you how did you feel after that weekend and after those years working on that project? How did you feel when it was complete? It was fabulous. I mean, it was it was a great opportunity for me to work on a job like that in any position. Um, it was so famous and, and it was so unique and ahead of its time and cutting edge and, you know, well received. Now, a lot of people say it's gaudy. And, you know, now that Trump has uh, become president and he has his many, many, many detractors, they love to criticize the building and say it's, um, it's over, uh, done, over decorative and marble and glass and 
low, you know, um, nouveau riche. Well, it sort of was nouveau riche. I mean, it wasn't the uh, storied class of Park Avenue that moved in there or shopped there. It was Wall Street people. It was new money. It was rich people. And to them, it was the most beautiful place in the world. It was really beautiful. And it immediately became a tourist trap. And even was before The Apprentice and then after The Apprentice. And forget about it now. Forget it. Everybody in the world wants to see Trump Tower. And and from the book, uh, I get the impression that you liked working for Donald Trump. Is that fair to say? I did. Um, You know, in retrospect, I've had a lot of bosses. Um, Some were not as smart, some were smarter, without a doubt. He was meaner than most of them, although I had a horrible, horrible boss that I worked for that. Terrible. No, no need to mention his name, but Trump was very, very difficult. I mean, he wanted everything done now. He wanted it done cheaper than humanly possible. He wanted it done quicker than humanly possible. He wanted it perfect when um, construction workers in New York do not build perfectly. They build to what we call industry standard so that there may be a gap in a wall. It's not, you know, the, the, the floor uh, patterns don't line up 100%. You know what I'm saying? So um, we fought constantly. But he was, at the time, very, very, very different than he is now. He was almost human and put a character on that almost because he was still a very rich man and had, you know, was better than everybody else, just like most rich people are. I hate to say it. Um, but we got along, uh, and he trusted me, and he trusted a lot of people. He listened to us, whereas you can tell now he listens to no one. And some things you did what he said, and then you lived with the consequences, and sometimes you didn't do what he said, and you lived with the consequences. And the other times you convinced him the right thing was his idea. And then, of course, he would say to do it, you know. So, I mean, I'm not saying everything he said was wrong, everything he said was stupid, everything was crazy. No, that's not true. But a lot of stuff he wanted to do was, was really off the wall. What's, um, what's really interesting is that once that major, once the most difficult part of the work was done, once that building was complete to that massively challenging deadline, it felt in the book like that was the, the peak and the peak for you. And it felt like after that, you needed to be challenged again. And it wasn't long before you were looking to get your teeth back into another construction project. Yeah, that's, that's true. Over the summer, we started opening the, um, the apartments. So we got our initial CBO, that's uh, a certificate of occupancy, and people started moving in. I think it was in the late summer. And then by the end of that year, we pretty much had everything squared away and we had permission to occupy the entire building. So I started getting antsy. You know, most of the things were finished. Um, well, they, they were just finishing touches. And the only thing left was like um, a laggard, which was the office building. And the floors were small, so they weren't, you know, taken up by big companies. And, and there were was that was split up and so I had 16 floors but I had maybe 30 tenants and every one of them wanted my attention so they're a little um uh, de minimis uh, 6,000 square foot space and, you know I just didn't have uh, I didn't I wasn't cut out to do that to um, deal with these small 
contractors and the small spaces. And I left the people that were in charge of the building that were in the maintenance of the building to deal with the, the questions that arose from these uh, from these small um, occupancies. And I moved on. And Trump did not want me to go. I mean, he really didn't want me to go. He begged me not to go, but he wasn't doing anything else at the time. So it was a matter of staying around and, you know, being pushed around by uh, 5,000 square foot tenants. (laughs) I wasn't (laughs) going to do that. And you did go back to work for him later. So to be fair, you know, you you did, you went over to do some of the projects and you went back uh, at a later date. Um, but I have to ask you something that um, I love the word epiphany anyway. I think it's a fantastic word, but I have to ask you about your own epiphany that you talk about towards the end of the book when um, there was a big uh, case going on in the US on sexual harassment. And it sounds like it really was a huge revelation to you and really um, made you look hard at, at your life on the construction sites and in the construction world? Yes, we had a, a man who was going to be, um, he was nominated and was going to be confirmed as a justice of the United States Supreme Court, which is the highest uh, judicial position one can attain. It's a lifeline, lifetime appointment, and there are only nine of them in the, in the entire country. And um, this man was accused of sexual harassment by a woman who worked for him. And sexual harassment was, it wasn't really even something people knew about. It was on the books because some of the laws had been enacted um, in the Supreme Court against it. And uh, this woman came forth and um, they turned her into a, a martyr. Um, the Republicans on the um, on the committee that interviewed the Democrat, the uh, the nominee, tortured her and castigated her and accused her. And you know, if if she she said that she worked for a man and this man did things that you know I don't need to go into what he did. Nothing like, by the way, what I went through. Just so you know, nothing like. Um, and um, she had to put up with it, and she came forward. She didn't even want to come forward. The FBI sort of dragged it out of her. Uh, she was an honest person. She was a lawyer. And um, she was anonymous for a while, and then somebody leaked her name, and the next thing you know, she was all over television, and then there was a four-day, like a mini-trial on these, uh, these accusations. And I was riveted, riveted. Um, I watched every minute of that, and then, you know, the people were divided. Um, People were calling her horrible names and saying that they were false accusations. And Anyway, throughout that period, I started to come to realize what it was that I had done and what I put up with in my career, which was primarily 10 years earlier. Um, because by the time I became an executive vice president, uh, people didn't mess with me because they'd get fired. I'd just fire them, you know. But um, I realized how I internalized all the torture and how it changed me. And it's sad. I could almost cry right now talking about it, how it changed me. The worst single thing, I swear to God, I'm almost in tears, is that I actually 
believed that I couldn't have children, that I had made a choice of career over children because of the career that I had chosen. And it was a miracle. It was a miracle that I had got pregnant. And I ended up with twins, <laughs> which were fabulous. And, and the most important thing in my life of anything I've ever done or will do is to have children. That's true of everybody that has children. But I was convinced I couldn't. I used to be a Catholic school girl. I never said bad words or anything like that. And I, I had to turn into this foul-mouthed person in order to survive in the, in the construction world. And they called me names and they did things to me. And even the people that liked and respected me abused me. After that happened, after that Thomas uh, hearing where Anita Hill, her name was Professor Anita Hill, was torn apart and tortured because she came forward, I went back to some of those people. I really gave it to them. I remember there was one structural engineer, and I think I can say this on your podcast. I went into a meeting. I never wore skirts, but, you know, you describe a, a woman as a skirt and a man as a suit very often. And uh, we went into a big meeting, and the architects were there, and uh, the engineers, and some of the contractors. And he, he was, it was an important meeting, and he was the, the head structural engineer. And he made a comment about me. He said, pick up her skirt, and you'll find a pair of balls. Well, that effort. I mean, do you know how that made me feel? It made me feel like everybody in that room was thinking, what's under her skirt, even though I was wearing pants? And that's the way it always was. It wasn't just what they said. It was what went with it. It wasn't just that they were naked pictures. It was that the men saw me naked. It wasn't just that they were cursing and people using the F word. It was that the men saw me being effed. That's what the creation of a hostile environment is. And to this day, very, very few people understand it. Well, I gave it to that man. I gave it to him, guns blazing. And you know what? He was shocked. He thought he was paying me a compliment. And that is a perfect example of the unconscious bias and the the discrimination that uh, women... Yes, the unconscious bias, the discrimination, and the abject insensitivity. How dare he not know that that was wrong? How dare he? And that goes on today. And I talk a lot about that. And I talk about sexual harassment. And I teach them. (laughs) And I mentor them. I can mentor a woman I never met. And I tell them, go find a real mentor. And go out and get someone to mentor yourself. Because women need women. And I had nobody. Sadly, this would not be the last time that a Supreme Court nominee was accused of sexual misconduct. That sexism still persists today is one of the reasons that Barbara now works to raise awareness of it in construction and supports women entering technical roles, particularly on sites. When I spoke with her, she was in the UK attending a number of construction conferences, sharing her experiences and highlighting the issues that women face. Having undertaken a law degree after her epiphany in the 1990s, Barbara recognises that legislation has moved on And by recognising sexual harassment, women are no longer subjected to the same treatment that existed on site in the 1970s. Yet sexism still persists, but in a more systemic and insipid form. I ran into a horror of horrors, somebody that worked for a big construction company that I would like to say the name of, 
but I would probably be sued. And I sat next to him on a, a first-class flight when I was coming back from Chicago. And he was a very big uh, executive in the company and in charge of hiring. And he starts giving me this business about a woman, only a woman can uh, nurture a child and uh, it's absolute nonsense. His wife stayed home with the children, you know, like that's what she was supposed to do. And he also made some comments about older workers, which I found horrifying also. But here was this big shot. In this. And then he's telling me, has the audacity to tell me that they go out of their way to get women into the business. He was just a liar. He was a liar. And that's what a lot of these companies do. They promote their diversity and they put up signs and they say, we're looking for women and we want to hire minorities. They're all full of shit, excuse the expression, a lot of them. And, you know, people ask me what can be done about this, and I say one thing. The government comes in. The government steps in and says, you do it. Hiring guidelines. They're called quotas. Bad, 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 bad word in the United States. But that's what you have to do. Because companies don't want one. Oh, some do. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of them don't. A lot of them don't. Why aren't there women on the boards of so many companies? Six percent of women in boards in, in our country and something similar to yours. Why? Women aren't capable of doing it? We could we could talk about this topic a lot and I hope that in the future we will. But I'd like to conclude our interview, but I want to um read back to you, if you like, the, the, the comment that really summarizes the title of your book, The All Alone on the sixty eighth floor where you say you were actually on the 68th floor of, of the Trump Tower and there'd been a, a fire alarm and you were stuck there. <laughs> but you, you, note, you noted that you actually liked to be up there when everybody had gone home. And you said, even when it was bare concrete and the only barrier was a steel wire, I liked the feeling of being on top of the world. And to my mind, I was on top of the construction world. I made that climb alone. And in those moments, I reveled in what I had accomplished. Yes, yes. I feel that way. And, and I wrote that. And I also believe I might have said, when I looked back, I saw no one behind me. I define my work. My work does not define me. And women always have to realize that if they're doing non-traditional roles. Because that is one thing that when I started right out as an engineer, Early on, before I was in the field, people called me names. You're not a woman. Why do you want to be a man? You're doing a man's job. Don't ever, don't ever let anyone tell you that the work you do defines who you are. And that's a big thing with women. A lot of women quit because of that. So that's, that's my parting words. You define the job. Your job does not define you. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by me, Bernadette Valentine. Special thanks to Barbara Rez, author of All Alone on the 68th Floor. Mixing and editing by John Young. Theme tune by JM Sounds. Additional music by Pond5. Executive producer is Rory Harris, and we'll be back in two weeks with more. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app, which helps others to hear about us, or simply tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and our website, rebe.media.